Okay, um, thanks everyone for coming. Uh, my name's Liam McNulty and I'll speak for about 20 minutes just to give some background on James Connolly. Um, so let me start by telling you why James Connolly, uh, someone born in 1868 who was uh, murdered for his role in the Easter Rising in 1916, is still so talked about today. So Connolly founded the Irish Labour Party he was the preeminent revolutionary socialist leader of his day in Ireland and a prominent trade union organiser. Today, as I mentioned, Connolly is best known for his key role in the Easter Rising in 1916 and as a signatory to the proclamation which declared an independent Irish Republic, triggering a chain of events culminating in the Irish War of Independence of 1919 and the Irish Civil War of 1922 to Ultimately, Connolly was executed during to, uh, due to his part in the Rising, and after he died, his socialism was played down, and he entered into the pantheon of Irish nationalist heroes as a Republican, yes, but uh, someone with a particular interest in social justice. However, in this talk, I want to explain why we cannot understand Connolly or his involvement in the Rising without an understanding of his socialism and that socialism informed how he approached the question of Irish self-determination. So born in poverty uh, in 1868 in Edinburgh to Irish parents, Connolly entered the workforce at around the age of 10 and was largely self-educated. After a spell in the British Army, he returned to Scotland in 1889, the same year that the Second International was formed and he promptly joined the socialist movement. In Britain in the late 1880s, the two main organisations were the Social Democratic Federation, the SDF, and the Socialist League. In Scotland, both had merged together to form the Scottish Socialist Federation, or the SSF. And the SFF, SSF was mainly a socialist propaganda organisation, carrying out open-air meetings and running educational meetings on uh, Marxist economics and, and topics of the day. And Connolly threw himself into the work of introducing socialist ideas to the working class public in Edinburgh. That made it difficult to find uh, permanent work. So he moved to Dublin in 1896 as an organiser for the Dublin Socialist Society. The Dublin that Connolly settled in at this time was deeply impoverished. In the working class slums, tuberculosis and overcrowding were rife and trade unions were weak concentrated largely in luxury trades, catering only for skilled male workers. As soon as he arrived in Dublin, Connolly formed the Irish Socialist Republican Party and soon established Ireland's first Marxist newspaper, the Workers' Republic. Like many socialist parties in Europe at the time, the ISRP adopted a, a programme which contained a number of minimum demands, such as nationalisation of the banks and industry and universal suffrage, with the maximum demand of socialism, which was to be uh, realised through the ballot box. Force was permissible, but only if a socialist majority was obstructed. However, while Marx and Engels had focused on Ireland largely as a lever for revolution in Britain, and British socialists were mostly content to limit themselves to echoing the Irish Parliamentary Party's demand for home rule within the British Empire, the ISRP was somewhat unique in its call for a fully independent Irish Socialist Republic. Around this time, Connolly constructed an innovative, though potentially quite problematic, conception of Irish history. 
Connolly argued that the conquest of Ireland had two aspects, political oppression and the social destruction of the old Gaelic order, which is said in his writings to have represented a sort of primitive communism. In other words, he takes the traditional nationalist scheme of 800 years of oppression of Ireland by England and injects a socialist content into it. And it was most pithily described in an article in his newspaper, later newspaper, The Harp. The history of Ireland ever since the English invasion has been one long history of a conflict between common property, represented by the Irish, and private property, represented by the English. So rather than successive and distinct modes of production, which generate particular classes and class conflicts, for example, serfs and lords, workers and capitalists, Connolly sometimes speaks in terms of a conflict between two conceptions or ideals of property, the common and the private, with seemingly the same class content across the ages. He uses this to argue that a focus on purely political independence or on home rule is insufficient, and this allows him to attack the home rulers of his own day. Ireland would not be free, Connolly argued, until it was independent, but also unless it was socialist, because socialism represented the reconquest of Ireland by its working class majority. This idea allows Connolly, with, this, with some impressive boldness, to place his very small, marginalised socialist movement in the wider and much more popular and well-rooted Irish Republican tradition. At this time, Connolly argues that if Republicans were consistent in their views, they would seek to reverse both the political and the social aspects of the conquest, which in modern terms means adopting a workers' republic with communal ownership of land and industry as their aim. That's the thought process behind Connolly's famous quote from the Belfast Republican Journal in January 1897. If you remove the English army tomorrow and hoist the green flag over Dublin Castle, unless you set about the organisation of a socialist republic, your efforts will be in vain. This has some major propaganda advantages, but the danger of the approach is that it can imply, in the wrong hands perhaps, a nascent socialist content to Irish republicanism, which is not necessarily or always there. A move from Irish Republicans should draw socialist conclusions to saying Irish Republicans will or might by some inner logic of the politics. This, of course, underestimates the extent to which you can have an independent Irish capitalism based on that very same Republican movement, which is exactly what happened after the Irish Revolution. Connolly's early efforts at cooperating with Republicans in ventures such as the 1798 uh, United Irishmen centenary commemoration and that propagandising with their members uh, were disappointing. The Republicans were not uh, willing to refuse dealings with the home rulers and thereby provided, in Connolly's words, an interesting corroboration of the truth of our statement that the advanced nationalists of our day were utterly regardless of principle. This criticism of republicanism became sharper and more dismissive. In the summer of 1899, he wrote that Ireland was unique in the possession of what is known as a physical force party, a party, that is to say, whose members are united upon no one point and agree upon no single principle except the use of physical force. So I'm going to turn now to the wider international socialist context, uh, which one must remember Connolly operated in uh, throughout his life. So a turning point for Connolly comes in 1900, the socialist movement was gripped by a controversy when the French socialist uh, Alexandre Mélenchon accepted a post in the French government alongside uh, General de Galifet, 
who had been the butcher of the Paris Commune in 1871 and now served as the Minister of War. Connolly was vigorously opposed to an attempt by Karl Kautsky to declare this merely a difference in tactics. And as a rebel within the ranks of the Socialist International, Connolly found himself in agreement with another rebel, uh, Daniel de Leon. De Leon was an American-based socialist and the leader of the principled but somewhat dogmatic Socialist Labour Party, the SLP. Connolly helped young activists in Scotland to establish a branch of de Leon's SLP as a split from the SDF, which he was previously involved in. And for this, he was invited to take part in an America-wide speaking tour in 1902. Two years later, struggling again to find work, Connolly decided to move to the United States, where he joined the SLP and became involved with the revolutionary new trade union, the Industrial Workers of the World, the IWW, or the Wobblies, as they're sometimes known as. Turning to migrant workers, the hitherto unorganised and the unskilled, the IWW proclaimed a vigorous revolutionary trade unionism, which declared openly that the working class and the employing class have nothing in common. Industrial unionism, that's uniting all workers in a given industry, rather than dividing them by trades, greatly excited Connolly, and he foresaw this form of workplace organising as preparing within the framework of the capitalist society the working form of the Socialist Republic. This marked Connolly out from socialists to put a stress on top-down state control. And this strain of socialism was already present in Connolly's socialism, uh, as in his 1899 critique of Fabian reformism, which uh, whoever in Momentum created those videos about socialism, meaning the state providing public services, really ought to have a read-off. Um, Connolly says, State ownership and control is not necessarily socialism. If it were, then the army, the navy, the police, the judges, the jailers, the informers and the hangmen would all be socialist functionaries as their state officials. But the ownership by the state of all lands and materials for labour, combined with the cooperative control by the workers of such lands and materials, would be socialism. Industrial unionist ideas were also taking form in Ireland at this time. Connolly in the United States increasingly missed Ireland and made arrangements to return in 1910 to work for an organiser for the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, which was founded by Jim Larkin. Uh, Connolly immediately threw himself into the struggle, uniting Catholic and Protestant workers in, in Belfast and trying to find a hearing for socialist ideas in the Socialist Party of Ireland, which was his latest political party. The height of Connolly's trade union activities would become, though, in 1913, with the Dublin lockout. The employers were terrified of this militant new trade unionism, and they wanted to break the Irish Transport Union. William Martin Murphy, the millionaire owner of several Dublin businesses, including the Irish Independent Newspaper, the uh, Imperial Hotel, the Dublin United Tramways Company, led the city's workers in locking out their the city's employers, sorry, in locking out their workers declaring that they could return only if they signed a declaration repudiating the union. Against this, Connolly led, uh, with Larkin, led mass picketing to stop the employers replacing union members with strike breakers. In response to violence from the police and the employers, Connolly helped form the Irish Citizen Army as an arms militia for the union. It was amongst the first such bodies in Europe, and it was influenced by the second international idea 
of the replacement of the standing army with the People's Militia that was proposed by the SDF in Britain and by uh, Jean Jaurès in France. There was a huge wave of solidarity in Britain with the Dublin lockout, spearheaded by the Daily Herald, which was a newspaper that had grown out of a 1912 strike in the London building trade. The one-time editor of the, the Herald, George Lansbury, a future Labour Party leader, described the paper as not just unofficial, but positively anti-official. It gave a voice to the movement of the rank and file in the trade unions, and solidarity with Dublin became a cause taken up with the most militant sections of the British working class. Larkin toured industrial centres in England, joined in one case by Big Bill Haywood of the IWW, and bolstered by funds from the French CGT. And this demonstrates uh, how, in part through some of Connolly's connections, a transnational network of solidarity could be mobilised. And if, if people want to try to find it after, it's, it's on Google. There's a fantastic picture of Haywood, Larkin, Connolly, and the Dockers leader, Ben Tillett, in the Clarion Cafe in Manchester uh, during the lockout. The demand of the Daily Herald was for solidarity action for Dublin. What would have, in effect, led to something close to uh, a general strike or a, or a mass strike wave. But the, the bureaucrats and the TUC were trying to keep a lid on things. The union leaders sought to restrict solidarity activity to raising money and sending food parcels. All of this was, of course, very worthy and useful, of course, and a measure of the profound sense of class solidarity in Britain at the time. But money and food could only keep the strike going. It could not tilt the balance against the employers in the way that not handling goods set for Dublin could be. There were some instances, such as in South Wales, of workers being victimised on the railways for taking this stance. But solidarity action in general was closed down by Jimmy Thomas, the leader of the National Union of Railways. With the workers starving in Dublin and with the British un unions unwilling to call strike in sympathy, the dispute had to be called off after several months. It was a huge blow to the union and one which would affect, would affect Connolly deeply. While this battle raged, a constitutional crisis was also reaching ahead. The Liberal government, re-elected in December 1909, was forced to rely on Irish nationalist MPs for a majority in the House of Commons, and in return pledged to introduce a third Home Rule Bill to give a measure of limited self-government to Ireland. However, backed by a section of the Conservative Party, Unionists in Ulster began to mobilise against Home Rule, denouncing it as Rome Rule and declaring their intention to form a provisional government were it ever enacted. Half a million Protestants in Ulster signed a solemn league and covenant to this effect in September 1912, and in January 1913 formed an Ulster volunteer force, which soon procured arms and began to drill. Partly in response to defend Home Rule, nationalists formed the Irish Volunteers in November 1913, just as the lockout was coming to an end. Before the display of force by the Unionists, Connolly uh, and many Republicans and Nationalists had assumed that Home Rule would pass, especially since the Liberals had removed the House of Lords' power to veto it with the Parliament Act. Connolly had written optimistically in 1911 that there is no economic class in Ireland today whose interests as a class are bound up with the Union, and he envisaged a political scenario in which the Irish Labour Party would find itself in opposition in a future Home Rule Parliament. However, unionist intransigence and the outbreak of the First World War uh, in the summer of 1914 
delayed the implementation of Home Rule. The outbreak of the war, which the socialist movement pledged solemn resolutions to oppose with a general strike, came as a huge blow to Connolly. He wrote despairingly that civilization is being destroyed before our eyes, the results of generations of propaganda and the patient heroic plodding and self-sacrifice are being blown into annihilation from the hundred cannon mouths. Connolly wrote that amidst the, the carnage and the slaughter, he thought that even a, an unsuccessful attempt at socialist revolution by force of arms, following the paralysis of the economic life of militarism, would be less disastrous to the socialist cause than the act of socialists allowing themselves to be used in the slaughter of their brothers, which is an impeccably internationalist stand, which, which uh, really uh, did credit to Connolly and to the Irish labour movement as a whole. In the very same issue of the Irish Worker, which was the Transport Union newspaper, that Connolly wrote this. He also wrote that if a German army were to land in Ireland tomorrow, it would be justified to join it to win Irish self-determination. To understand this, it may be helpful to consider Connolly's attitude as a dual perspective. Both socialist revolution and national self-determination were held out as potential prospects on the horizon. Both aims were contingent, however, on creating social and political forces which could realise them in reality. In Connolly's view, soon became clear not only that the Second International had failed to stop the war, but the labour movements in Europe, Britain or Ireland did not seem capable of sparking a worker-led socialist insurrection in the time frame that Connolly hoped. As the war continued, notions of socialism and national liberation continued to coexist in Connolly's mind, but socialism uh, retained more of a propaganda character, whilst in practice, they attempted to spark an uprising that, given the balance of forces, would necessarily be of a more limited character. As soon as the war broke out, the more radical Republican activists in the Irish Republican Brotherhood secret society had also pledged to stage an uprising before the war was finished. After some initial cooperation, the IRB's planning went deeper underground to avoid repression. Unknown to Connolly, they were planning an uprising, but he took this to mean that they had lapsed into inactivity. Connolly used the Citizen Army and his newspaper, The Workers' Republic, to agitate publicly for an insurrection, to the extent that the IRB were worried that Connolly would go it alone. Connolly, they feared, was willing to use the Citizen Army to provoke a rising which would have pulled the wider Republican forces into a clash with the British. The best way to stop Connolly doing this, the IRB figured, was to co-opt him. After some convincing, in January 1916, Connolly signed up to their plan to organise a rebellion under the cover of weekend manoeuvres of the volunteers on Easter Sunday 1916. With the socialist forces in Ireland weak, Connolly decided to go along with the plans of the IRB because here was a ready-made scheme for an uprising that looked serious. It's possible that Connolly thought that if a rising happened, it would lead to a mass involvement and maybe develop some sort of socialist dynamic. There's a famous quote in the end of, the, of victory, in the event of victory, hold on to your rifles, as those with whom we are fighting may stop before a goal is reached. We are out for economic as well as political liberty. It's quoted in Desmond Greaves' biography, but no exact source has ever been found for it. But I have found some people reported in the Citizen Army and the Irish Labour Party in the 20s and 30s who reported Connolly saying very similar things. That said, Connolly did not shout this warning from the rooftops. 
and the citizen army didn't enter into the rising with a manifesto of its own. Connolly signed the proclamation, which was a radical bourgeois nationalist document, not a socialist document. So we can discuss Connolly's involvement uh, in the rising, and the debate has raged pretty much ever since. Some read Connolly's whole life backwards from that moment and see it as a sort of teleological endpoint of his entire activity. Some, like the biographer Desmond Greaves, see Connolly's involvement as recognising the revolutionary potential of the national bourgeoisie and see him adop adopting a stages approach. First, national self-determination and independence. Then, when that's won, you can fight for socialism. This, I would argue, is a backwards projection of the later Stalinist approach to semi-colonial countries, not evidenced by Connolly's thinking at the time, which must be understood as a socialist trying to get a grip on a very specific situation that he finds himself in. Though he always had a concern for national self-determination, Connolly's involvement in the rising cannot simply be read off his writings, say, in 1897 on republicanism. It was contingent, obviously, on the war, but also the state of the movement around him and his analysis of the conditions. So what, what were those conditions? The Second International had collapsed. The Union had been smashed. Half of its members had signed up to the British Army. And Connolly saw the war as a chance. Otherwise, the idea of an independent Ireland might be completely extinguished. He did not know that the 1917 revolution was coming. And indeed, the Irish War of Independence might not have happened without the rising, or at least not the same form. From the perspective of early 1916, it looked like conscription was coming. The TUC in Britain had already signed an accord with the government. Labour ministers were in government. The threat of a servile state using draconian emergency powers loomed. And the second international idea of peacefully building the unions in the party did not seem to fit with the situation. Some, like Lenin, thought that the war would generate a revolutionary crisis. Connolly's analysis was in a sense more pessimistic, but it led him to quite voluntarist or optimistic conclusions that the only way out was to seek a rising now where the chance would be missed. When some sunk into despair or passivity, Connolly, possessed of an incredible revolutionary spirit, was not content to sit back. Connolly hoped that the working class in freeing Ireland to free itself from capitalism. The rising was not based on the labour movement, though many workers were involved, and it sparked a movement which led not to the overthrow of capitalism, but eventually the political independence of part of the island, um, accompanied by partition and oppression of the Catholic minority in the six counties in the north. Nevertheless, it was a huge blow against the British Empire uh, and against imperialism generally. The fight for Connolly's Workers' Republic, however, is yet to be won. And what Connolly wrote in 1910 in his classic Labour and Irish History remains true today. Only the Irish working class remain as the incorruptible inheritors of the fight freedom in Ireland. Thank you very much. <laughs>